James chapter 5 is where we're going to be today. Uh, I love the book of James. Uh, He talks about having faith and putting your faith into action. That is actually fleshing out what you say you believe. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to live it. And, And so James reiterates the fact that our faith needs to be in action. If you can remember all the way back to last Sunday, <laughs> I preached from James chapter 4, uh, the last few verses of that chapter. And, and in that passage, James talks about a man who decides to go to a city, uh, spend a year there, do business, and make money. And we analyzed that last Sunday and, and asked the question, is there anything wrong with those four things this man said he was going to do? Uh, go to a city, spend a year there, do business, and make money. And we surmised that there's nothing wrong with any of those four things. Okay? So why is James making a big deal about it? Well, he says, why, why would you even think that way when you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow? Okay? He wasn't saying that it's wrong to make money or to do business or even go to a city and spend time there. He is saying what's wrong with that is if that's your only focus. If your main focus in life is the here and now and what can I get today and how much money can I have today and how much stuff can I hoard up for myself in this world. He said if that's the way you think, your thinking's wrong. Because your life is like a mist or a vapor. It appears for a very short time, and then it just vanishes away. He said, what you ought to be thinking and saying is this. If it is the Lord's will, then I'll do this, or then I'll do that. And last week we discovered the Lord's will is the most important thing that you can find in your life. The Lord's will. God's will, nothing more, nothing less. God's will God's way. And then he continues right into chapter 5 with these words. So are you listening? I think they're going to be on the screen. You can follow along. I'm reading out of the NIV. Now listen, you rich people. Okay. And so right there, some of you just turned me off because you say, oh, this doesn't pertain to me because I'm not rich. Well, Wednesday night, I preached from James chapter 1, where he began talking about rich people and poor people. And what I said Wednesday night, I'll say to you this morning, every one of us in this room is richer than probably 80% of the people on planet earth. I mean, you are, God has blessed you. I mean, all of you had a bed to sleep in last night, right? A roof over your head, you drove here in a car, you've got clothes on your back, you've got food in your refrigerator. So you are richer than probably 80% of the people on the face of this earth. My daughter Callie can take you to places in third world countries where people are really poor. So you know what? This could be pertaining to you. What does he say? Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields is crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not even oppressing you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. 
See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged, for the judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And let me just say, praise the Lord. He is. He is very full of compassion and mercy. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would now take the the written word that we have read and speak it into our hearts. Lord, as I try to speak on the outside, I pray that you would speak into everyone's life that is in this room. For those who need encouragement, I pray that you would bring it. For those, dear Lord, who need to be convicted, I pray that you would convict them. But dear Lord, when it's all said and done, may we realize that you are full of compassion and mercy, yet you are also the judge who is standing at the door. I pray that you'd be glorified in this time of preaching, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Now, when James comes to the end of his letter, or chapter 5, as we have it divided for us in our English language, he has already discussed all of the topics that he's going to talk about in this particular passage. He is still talking about economic discrimination which he began talking about in chapter 1. He talked about it in chapter 2, chapter 4, and now in chapter 5. He's still talking about the peril of riches. He's still talking about grumbling and the unwise use of the tongue. He's still talking about persevering in times of struggling. James has already spoken on each one of these issues, but now in chapter 5, he's bringing all these things back up again. But he's looking at them against the backdrop of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice some phrases that we've already read. For example, in verse number 1, he talks about the misery that is coming. That's referring to a future event that we know of as the judgment. Now, for those of us who are Christians, we don't, we don't think of it as misery at all because we're going to get to go into heaven. But for an unbeliever, it will be misery. Then in verse number 3, he talks about the last days. That is a vital New Testament phrase talking about the days leading up to the return of Jesus Christ. Verse number 5, he mentions the day of slaughter which has to do with the return of Christ and the judgment. Verse number 5, he said, the Lord is coming. Verse number 8, the Lord's coming is near. And then in verse number 9, the judge is standing at the door. (laughs) Wow. So here is James's treatment on the subject of the return of Jesus Christ. And he sees it as imminent. That is, nothing else has to happen before Jesus Christ returns, and he could return at any moment. In this passage, James does not say a word about the unfolding of any prophetic events. His whole system of eschatology 
talking about the end days, and his entire philosophy of the end of the world are summed up in these phrases that I just shared with you, but in particular, the phrases found in verse 8 and 9. In verse 8, he said, the Lord's coming is near. And then in verse 9, he says, the judge is standing at the door. That is, God has put on his judgment robe, and he's standing at the door ready to judge this world. And that, my friends, is James's eschatology. He doesn't say anything about the rapture of the church. He doesn't talk about the great tribulation. He doesn't mention the battle of Gog and Magog. He doesn't talk about all millennial or postmillennialism or premillennialism or if you're a pre pre mid or post trib. <laughs> that doesn't say any of that. Well, here's what I want you to get. Here's what James is saying. Here's James's view of eschatology. And it's the one I follow as well. Here's what he's saying. Are you ready? Jesus is coming. That's it. Jesus is coming. He is coming soon. And he gives us a snapshot of this, something that we can visually see. He says, the judge is standing at the door. That's how near the coming of Jesus is. The judge is standing at the door. And what he is saying is this. You had better put into practice the instructions that I have just given you in this letter. Why? Because the end is near. The judge is at the door. And while you still have time to get your life right and to do what God wants you to do, you better be doing it. Really what he's saying is you need to put your faith into action. Don't, don't just say it. Live it. James isn't concerned with the collateral events of the second coming, but with the implications that the reality of the second coming ought to be having on our daily lives. He's taking the instructions that he's already given us in chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4 and showing us how they are all the more imperative because the judge of the universe is at the door ready to judge the entire world who stands guilty before him. In particular, James is going to go back now and address three issues that he's already talked about. And lay these out for us in light of the fact that Jesus is about to come. So what are they? Number one, because Christ is coming, rich people shouldn't hoard their stuff. Aren't you glad they came out with that, those shows on, on hoarding? Hoarders? Aren't you glad they did that? Because they just, they, what they've done is they have shown you how your neighbors live. Yeah? And I, I don't I, I, the truth is, I think all of us have a little bit of hoarding inside of us. See, they won't admit it, will they, Jason? Nobody. All of us have a little hoarding inside of us. The, the deal is, some of you are better organizer, organizers of your hoarding than, than the rest of us. But here's, here's what Jesus is saying. James is saying, Jesus is coming. He is coming soon. So you better be thinking of him instead of all this stuff 
that you have accumulated. In other words, if you are a believer and God has blessed you financially, you know what? You don't need to be hoarding that stuff because you're not going to take it into eternity with you. What do you need to be doing? You need to be generous with it. You don't need to be greedy and selfish because, listen to me, listen church, it's not yours anyway. And as a believer, we need to get that concept of what biblical stewardship is. None of the stuff that you have is really yours, including your kids, your family, your grandkids. They belong to the Lord. You know, God has just lent them to you for a very short time, as well as all the stuff that you have. In other words, you need to be treating others with the kind of generosity and honesty that befits God's people. And I mean, James is pretty rough on, on all of us right here. Listen, just listen to some of the stuff he said. He says, now listen, listen, you rich people. And he's talking to Christians here. Listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and your silver are corroded. The corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. And then he goes on to describe the fact that you've hired people to do work for you, but then you don't even pay them, much less help poor people who are in need. Why? Because you're hoarding yourself with all of the world's goods and you're greedy. I just got to step back and say, you know what? That, that describes America today to a T, does it not? And I'm telling you, even, even those of us in the church... We've been injected with this poison. You get around preachers, and you know what preachers talk about mostly? Nickels and noses. Really, nickels and noses. How many people we had on Sunday and what the offering was. You know? We've eaten the poison ourselves. Our world revolves around money. We're consumed with money. We're consumed with making it, with saving it, with spending it. And you know what? We're greedy with it. In fact, some of you are getting pretty ticked off at me right now. You're thinking, I just wish this dude would go on to point number two and quit talking about this. But you know what? Jesus, the gospel, said more about money than anything else because you know what? The Lord knows he knows what gets to us. And he knows that we're all consumed with this greed. I recently read about a story about two brothers. Their father had died and left them a huge estate, which included thousands of acres. Everything was decided and divided except for one little strip of land in which there was a 50-foot dispute. These two brothers got into a fight over that 50-foot strip of land and who was going to own it. The surveyor suggested that they split it right down the middle and each take 25 feet. But the brothers couldn't agree to that. And so they took each other to court and spent thousands of dollars suing each other. Finally, the judge did what the surveyor said they should do. He just split it right down the middle and he gave 25 feet to each brother. Well, these brothers wouldn't go for that. So they built a big old fence right down the middle and they posted no trespassing signs. One of them even posted a sign, trespassers will be shot. Yeah. They got mad at each other and for years they haven't even talked to each other. All over a 50-foot strip of land. 
I mean, we're greedy. <laughs> we're consumed with this stuff. And throughout the book of James, we find warnings against greed and warnings against loving money. Again, listen to me. The Bible doesn't say anything. There's nothing wrong with making money, nothing wrong with having money, unless money's got a hold of you. And if you love money more than you love God. In fact, that is reiterated throughout the book of James. Chapter 1, verse 9. I preached on this this past Wednesday night. Here's what James said. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in the high position God has given him. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position. Because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. Listen, in the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he's going about his business. Chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Chapter 2, verse 15. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or without daily food. If one of you simply says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and, and be well fed, but does nothing to meet his physical needs, well, what good is that? And then in chapter 4, verse 13. Listen. You who say today or tomorrow we will go into this city or that city, spend a year there, do business, and make money. Why, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. What is your life? It is like a vapor that appears for a short time and then vanishes away. What you ought to be saying is, if it's God's will, we will do this or that. And now we have this passage here in chapter 5. Notice especially the last part of verse 3. He says, you have hoarded your wealth. Church, what he's saying is this. Jesus is coming back. He is coming back soon. So the question is, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or, or let me ask you this, Christian. What good is it going to do you if you have thousands of dollars in the bank when you die, what, what's going to happen to it? Well, your kids are going to fight over it. Or the government's going to get it. Huh? Come on. You know? Probably n nothing good is going to come. Why not invest it in kingdom stuff? Why don't you make eternal investments with the stuff God has blessed you with? Because that's the only thing that's going to last. And what's going to last in eternity? People who are saved. Believers. Those who have trusted Jesus. About a month ago, we took up, uh, took up our WMO offering, our world mission offering, and I, I, I made mention of this particular song. I, man, I just love the song. It's an old song, but uh, the, the, the guy singing the song and telling a story about this dude who imagines he's gone to heaven. And when he gets to heaven, this person comes up to him that he doesn't even know, who's from a third world country, and, and says to the guy, hey, I want to thank you for giving to the Lord. He said, do you remember that time that, that missionary came to your church and he showed you pictures on the screen that made you cry and you didn't have much money, but what you had, you gave it? Well, thank you for giving to the Lord because of that gift that you gave, a missionary came to my town, told me about Jesus, and I'm saved. Now, that's the long explanation of the song, but that's what the song is all about. 
James is saying, in light of the second coming of Jesus Christ, you don't need to be hoarding the stuff that God has blessed you with. Be generous with it. Use it for the kingdom of God. You're saying, preacher, please go to point two. Okay, here I am. (laughs) Number two, because Christ is coming, the righteous shouldn't grumble. (laughs) You see, you thought I was going to let you off the hook. Here, it's worse now. Point number two is worse, all right? Verses 7 through 9. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't, what's the word? Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters. He's he's talking to Christians, church members. Don't grumble against one another. Or you will be judged because the judge is standing at the door. You see, in the first paragraph, point number one, James was talking to people who had money and were hoarding that money. But in this second passage, he seems to be talking to people who were having a hard time just making ends meet. The wealthy people weren't treating them well. They haven't paid them for their work or they haven't been generous to them those who were living in poverty, and and these people were prone to grumble about that. There you are. I told you first service. I think this is our default nature, grumbling, because we all do it. Come on, man, don't we? I mean, we do. We, We love to grumble. We love to gripe. We love to complain. I mean, I've already heard a hundred times today, sure is hot outside. Well, yeah, it's hot. It's June. It's going to get hotter. But, but that's just the way, that's our default nature. We, we gripe about it, you know. And, and here in six months, we're going to say, oh, it sure is cold outside. I mean, we just, we love to gripe and complain, don't we? Good grief. I'm just going to sit down. because Don't we? Yeah. I mean, half of you are going to go home and gripe and complain about something that happened at church today. I mean, that's just what you do. Did did you know that the word grumble occurs 28 times in the Bible? But 28 out of 28 times, it is a negative thing. It is condemned in the Word of God. There is not a single time when this word grumble is used in a commendable way. God hates our grumbling. And I mean, I mean, good grief, we're just, we're just like the children of Israel. Go back and read the Old Testament. They are constantly grumbling and complaining. That's why most theologians believe they were Baptist. <laughs> you know, and, and I got to agree because it's our, what is it? Nathan, what is it? It's our default nature, man. We just, we do it. We just, we're, we're grumblers. Reminds me of this young man who, who decided to join a monastery and so he joined this particular monastery, and, and as a monk, he had to take a vow of silence. It's one of those monasteries where you didn't say anything. And so after five years of service at the monastery, you could say two words, but they had to be said in front of an abbot. So after his first five years, uh, the abbot was called, and he spoke his two words after five years. His two words were, bad food. Five more years of service, then he came back to the abbot. His, his second set of words after another five years, bad hard. 
the first service people laugh a lot more than y'all are laughing at it. So bad food, bad heart. He served five more years, 15 years, and the abbot came in. His third set of words, I quit. So the abbot threw up his arms and said, well, it, it's no surprise to me. All you've done is grumble and complain since you've been here. That's who we are, man. Here in James chapter 5, James tells us we shouldn't grumble. And I'm saying, this is serious. Would, would you look at me? This is serious. James is serious when he says this. And he's saying it to the church. He's saying, of all people, you are the ones who should not grumble. And, and he tells us you shouldn't grumble. Why? Because God is going to judge you for that. God hates grumbling. And he emphasizes it by saying, the judge is already standing at the door. Instead, instead of grumbling, we should be patient. Patience is the opposite of and the remedy for grumbling. Patience means that instead of grumbling and wringing our hands and trying to solve the situation ourselves, we're patient. Why? Because we've given it to the Lord. We've told God about this problem. We've told God about these people who, <laughs> who are putting us in despair. And we've turned it over to the Lord. And so instead of grumbling about it, we've given it to God. James tells us because Jesus is, is coming and coming soon, the rich shouldn't hoard, the righteous shouldn't grumble. And finally, number three, because Christ is coming, the discouraged should not despair. Boy, I love this. Look at verse number 10. Brothers and sisters, as an example, and, and underline that in your Bible, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know... We count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. And get this, his last statement is, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. I want you to go back to verse 10. He says, dear brothers and sisters, as an example, as an example, this is how you should be living. And he's going to point to one of the Old Testament patriarchs of the faith. I am so glad that the Bible gives us uh, examples to follow. The, the, the Bible is biographical. That is, it gives us several people snapshots of their lives, stories of their life, so that we can follow their example. I'm thankful for that. Amen. Hey, let me tell you, I'm thankful for the godly examples we have here at Kavanaugh Church. Okay? Our first service, I, I recognized a, a young couple in our church, who today are celebrating their 63rd wedding anniversary. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? Harold and Maxine Melton, today they've been married 63 years. And I, I, I told her in public, she was sitting right there, I said, Maxine, I don't know how you've done it <laughs> for 63 years living, living with it. But you know what? Listen, young couples who, who are recently married, there is an example in our church of someone you can follow, you know? It, the, the reason, and I really don't think Harold and Maxine are going to split up now. I mean, after 63 years invested, I don't see this one ending anytime soon. And you know how they've done it? Well, they just haven't gotten a, a divorce. They, they've worked through their problems. 
And so for you younger couples, there is a prime example. And our church is filled with examples of of godly people whose lives you can look to and follow as an example. And that's what James is doing here. He is saying, here is an Old Testament individual who is an example of perseverance in the face of suffering. And church, he could have mentioned a whole lot of people in the Old Testament. He could have talked about Abraham who waited for years for God's will to be done in his life. He could have mentioned Joseph, who was enslaved and imprisoned from the time he was 17 until the time he was 30. You talk about patience, he had it. He could have told us about Moses or Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel or Ezekiel, but he didn't. He pinpointed a particular man by the name of Job. A whole book is written about Job in the Old Testament. And one of the things that kind of grabs me from the word of God about Job is the fact that Job is very honest and open about his trials in life. But five times he affirms his faith in God even in the darkest of life's moments. For example, in chapter 1 he said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. In chapter 2, he told his wife, shall we accept good from the hand of God and not bad? And he refused to curse God. In chapter 13, he made one of the greatest declarations about God and faith in the Bible. He said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. In chapter 19, he said, I know that my Redeemer lives. In chapter 23, he said, he knows the way I take. I will come forth as gold. And so James points to Job as our example. His whole point is that when we're facing pressures and problems and persecutions, we don't need to give up. I mean, we don't need to throw in the white towel. We need to persevere and stay at the grind and face forward. We should trust God and go on. Church, listen. We need to banish discouragement and look ahead to better days because they're coming. Jesus is coming again. And it gets a whole lot better. This is the same point James has already made earlier in his book. Chapter 1, he said, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Blessed is the person who perseveres under trials. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to all those who love his appearing. And here in chapter 5, dude, he's saying the same thing. But this time, it's against the backdrop of the return of Jesus Christ. He, He is literally saying the words of that old hymn that we used to sing. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. On December 7th, 1941, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and literally changed our world. Not only here in America, but really it changed the whole world. In in Washington, President Franklin Roosevelt called an emergency cabinet meeting. The presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin wrote the following about that meeting. At 8.30 p.m. on Sunday night, the cabinet began to gather in the president's study. A ring of extra chairs had been brought in to accommodate the overflow crowd. 
The president was sitting silently at his desk. He was preoccupied and seemed not to be seeing or hearing anything that was going on around him. It was very interesting, interesting one person observed, because the president was always a very friendly and outgoing man on the personal side. He never overlooked people. But I don't think he spoke to anyone who came in the room that night. He was living off in another area. He wasn't noticing what went on on the other side of his desk. He was very serious. His face and lips were pulled down, and they looked quite gray. Finally, he turned around and said, Well, I am thankful that all of you came. He went on to say that this was probably the most serious meeting of the cabinet of the United States since the outbreak of the Civil War. By 10 p.m., congressional leaders had joined the cabinet in the overflow study. The president told the gathering that he had prepared a short message to be presented at a joint session of Congress on the following day. The message called for a declaration by Congress that a state of war had existed between Japan and the United States from the moment the attack occurred at Pearl Harbor. The effect on the congressmen was tremendous. They sat in dead silence until finally Senator Tom Connolly from Texas spoke up. And he voiced the question that had been on everyone's mind. How did it happen that our warships were caught like tame ducks on Pearl Harbor? He shouted with a purple face. I'm trying to decide to tell you the next thing he said. (laughs) I'll tell you. Because he was Tom Connolly from Texas. He said, President, I just want to know, how did they catch us with our pants down? (laughs) I don't know, Tom, the president muttered. He bowed his head and said, I just don't know. Church, listen to me. One day soon, Jesus is going to bust open the eastern sky. One day soon, he's going to return with a shout, with the voice of an archangel. The clouds are going to gather in battle formation. The winds will whip around the world as though turning the sky into a global cyclone. The angel is going to shout with a voice of a trumpet, and believers around the world are going to look up and say, He's back! (laughs) That's pretty cool. And just like that, we're going to be gone. If you're a Christian, if you're born again, If you've invited Jesus into your life, if your name's written in the Lamb's book of life, you're going to be taken to heaven. And some of those left behind, and listen to me, there will be a lot of people left behind. They're going to be asking themselves in terrible and anguishing amazement, how is it? 
How is it that we were caught unawares, unprepared, not ready for His coming? After all the warnings, after all the predictions, after all the opportunities, and now this rapture has come, the summer is past, the harvest is over, and we are not saved. Friend, let me tell you, you don't want to be in that group. You don't want to be left behind. Because what awaits for you is the judge who's standing at the door. And you will be judged according to the word of life in this book. And anyone who is found without faith in Jesus Christ will be condemned throughout all eternity. The judge is at the door. He's coming soon. So church, listen to me. In light of all of that, the rich should not hoard their money. The righteous should not grumble. And the discouraged should not despair. <laughs> Is this serious? You better believe it's serious. And, and listen to me, please. Don't leave this building with the wrong impression of God. You need to look at, at the words that James wrote at the very end of verse 11. Here's what he says. The Lord is full of what? He is full of compassion and he is full of mercy. Amen, he is. He, listen to me, listen to me. He is long-suffering. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to go to hell. He doesn't want anyone to spend eternity away from him in heaven. Why? Because he's full of compassion and mercy. And he loves you. He sent his son Jesus Christ to die for your sins on Calvary's cross. And all you have to do is believe. All you have to do is accept this gift of eternal salvation. And you can be saved. That's God. He's full of compassion, love and mercy and long-suffering. But he's the total God. He's also the judge of the universe. He cannot stand sin, nor will he allow sin into his perfect heaven. So he is the judge standing at the door. You say, well, this, this is just not fair. You tell me what's not fair about it. God is giving you every opportunity that he can afford to you for you to get your life right. It's up to you, man. It's up to you. And let me tell you, for the, for the church, for the Christians, for those, for those of you who are Kavanaugh members, let me tell you, I, I love James because he, he talks about faith and action. And he's saying, in light of Jesus' return, this is what we need to be thinking about. You reach people, you don't need to be hoarding your wealth, you need to be generous. Those of you who are righteous, you don't have any reason to grumble and complain. And for those of you who are discouraged, don't despair. Jesus is coming back. So I just want to say to you, Kavanaugh people, you know what? It, let's just live it. Let's just live out our faith. Let's live what we say we believe. If you call yourself a Christian, dude, just live it. Flesh it out. Not just at church, but every day of the week. Live the life. And if you're having trouble doing that, man, I encourage you this morning to come and get re-energized by the power of God at this altar. People, this morning, some of you need to come and be saved. Others of you need to come and just do what James has talked about in this passage because Jesus is coming again.